Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It's hard to pinpoint the biggest hot spot that we ought to be paying attention to, uh, Paul Sweeney. Luckily, we have Jack Devine here to go through them all with us. He is the founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also former chief of the CIA's Worldwide Operations, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Jack, we love having you. Thank you for being here. I want to start with Venezuela because a lot of people are pinpointing the fact that it's become sort of a proxy location for a battle battle for supremacy between Russia and China on one hand and the U.S. on the other. And I'm wondering from your perspective, how valid is it to view the conflict in Venezuela currently through that lens? Lisa, as you know, I'm a cold warrior, unreformed, if you will. And if you, hold, if you stay in a game long enough, it repeats itself. So when I look at Venezuela today with my background, having spent so many years in the struggle with uh, the Russians and the Cubans, I mean, this is a very familiar pattern. You know, they see a vulnerability on our flank and in our sphere of influence, and they push it for maximum advantage. Now, I think most Americans haven't been following over the past several years just how important Russia's financial support has been to Venezuela. And on, again, the professional side, the part that I'm quite familiar with, having supported the Cuban intelligence group and being able to monitor the opposition and how to uh, counteract it's very reminiscent of the Cold War. Having said that, uh, the second part of that play is we have always resisted uh, th those uh, adventures into this hemisphere. And I, uh, the strong action of sanctioning uh, Venezuela is all part of this uh, bigger chess, uh, chess game. And uh, I do think we have to keep uh, Russia and Cuba uh, from gaining another foothold in the region. So, Jack, given your long experience in that region of the world. What is your sense of how this plays out? It seems like when the, um, it, there is a lot of support for, we have two presidents now. I mean, I guess my sense is just very quickly, how do you think this will play out? I think it's a very complicated uh, situation. We tend to uh, underestimate how far a country has to fall before there's an eruption of, of uh, a, a regime change. So when you look at the dynamic, I mean, the inflation in, uh, in Venezuela, uh, the shortages of goods, the lack of uh, uh, sufficient protection for the citizens, the autocratic nature of, of the Madero uh, government, they're at a very low point uh, in the uh, process. That doesn't mean that it's going to be resolved quickly. Actually, I was reading an article today in which one of the opposition leaders said, one of our vulnerabilities here, if we think that this is a short game, we're, we're probably going to be, you know, we're going to dissipate our energy. So this is a sustained, sustained effort. I don't think it's over anytime soon. And as you know, the key, or at least many analysts would say, the key is where does the military come down? But the so military is not a united monolithic group. You have right. military leadership, and then you have the private and sergeant that's living with inflation shortages in his family. So the military doesn't have a lock on it. And the question is, at what point in this process 
does the system break? And it is, uh, I don't want to say it's a game of chicken that diminishes it, but there is, this is going to be a, a move and counter move, I think, for some period of time. Over the long play, Madero goes. Not sustainable. I want, to, I want to shift gears a little bit. The way that we get a sense of how to engage most effectively is through our intelligence operations, both in Venezuela and elsewhere in the world. And I want to just check in with you about something that we've talked about over the, the, over the past few years, which is morale at the CIA right now, given the fact that we still are getting leaks about things uh, out of the CIA and the fact that there does seem to be some... Uh, dissonance, disagreements uh, within the administration right now. Can you give us a read? How are things, just internally? My experience uh, in, in the agency is that morale is often directly correlated to how important the agency is in the scheme of things in our policy and how much is an, an administration uh, using the CIA. That is really the ingredient. As a population, it's probably split 48 52 Republican Democrats switching there is part of America. So it's not so politicized in that regard. Today, whether you had a Republican president or a Democratic president, the CIA is a really critical piece of the action. So I, at the working level, as opposed to uh, we're seeing it played out some policy level disputes, but the rank and file is more interested in doing doing the job. Now, at the policy level, um, I mean, the mission of the CIA, engraved on its wall, and we've talked about this before, its product is to just tell the facts the way they are. And when it gets in trouble, it deviates from that. So policymakers need to understand that and live with it. And the best ones uh, understand that that is a strength. And so I think um, looking at the situation today, um, I think... Uh, you know, everyone's looking that there be a fight between the intelligence community and the policymakers. Uh, I think that's not good for this country. Uh, and I think over time, uh, good objective intelligence prevails, and most presidents eventually succumb to the to the importance of relying on it. So, how the so you're saying that the uh, um, some of the commentary from President Trump and the administration denigrating uh, the intelligence agencies. You're thinking you're senses that these, these agencies can withstand that, certainly in the near term, focus on the longer term? You know, I may be an optimist, but my experience leads me to believe that truth does prevail, uh, that reason does prevail. Uh, and I think when you look at the assessments, you know, there's things that are said in the public forums, other things were said in the back room. I don't think the intelligence, I'd be shocked. I know, let me put that differently. I know the intelligence community really considers uh, Iran an evil empire, right? It's, you know, my career, I was in charge of Iranian operations at one point. There's no school of thought inside the agency that Iran is a good nation and a part of the brotherhood. Uh, so I think the dispute is whether or not the specific ingredients of the uh, of the uh, treaty worked out with them on nuclear uh, uh, development is being uh, adhered to. And I think the sense is it is. They would point out, if pressed, and I believe it's probably even in the record, that you know this is not an ironclad agreement, the nuclear agreement. So there is room for developing missiles. There's uh, sites that can't be worked. Yeah. So 
it's it's not as clean as uh, maybe portrayed publicly. So I think the CIA is very much aware about all of these things and they understand the motivations. But if you look at the technical point A, point B, yeah. they haven't broken it. Jack Devine, we love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also former chief of CIA's worldwide operations, author of Good Hunting, a spy master's story. Uh, really interesting to get this perspective because the intelligence community is so pivotal in national security and uh, has been under, under a lot of scrutiny of late. The U.S. retail industry continues to undergo tremendous disruption brought about by e-commerce writ large and perhaps Amazon.com in particular. And no U.S. name has been more impacted, arguably, than Sears, the venerable Sears brand in the United States. To help us kind of parse through what is going on in retail these days, particularly with Sears, there's been some more news there, is Bert Flickinger. Bert is a managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Bert joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Bert, we love to have you here. Thank you very much. Can you give us the latest on what is going on at Sears? It looks like uh, Eddie Lambert won another round of uh, to keep this company afloat. And uh, my question to you is, what is going on? What's the latest? Uh, Paul and Lisa, another really regrettable example of bankruptcy judge uh, Bob Drain, who was a big Wall Street partner, uh, let, letting uh, Lambert's lawyers who uh, making thousands of dollars uh, per hour just run roughshod in my professional view with a lot of experience in this area run roughshod over the creditors um, including the vendors uh, the workers the landlords and lampert is epitomized retail ineptitude uh, throughout his career how do you really feel <laughs> and and for drain um to not have the right person uh, with Lampert, with his advisors, uh, with the law firm Wild Gotchall, without the right well, skills, uh, uh, how to, you know, it's inex institutionally inexcusable all right. in my view. So Sears has been an absolute uh, mess for a while, and certainly that's been reflected in the fact uh, that the shares are trading under a dollar until very recently. They've surged, they've actually almost doubled from 60 cents to a dollar uh, in the past two sessions. But I'm just wondering, what could Sears do at this point to rejuvenate itself? Lisa, uh, key question you're asking, and here's where uh, Lampert fails to have a good grasp of the obvious. He had e-commerce right in front of him, as you've presently pointed out a number of times. The Sears catalog couldn't have been converted to e-retail to compete with Amazon, but it could have been effective. Kurt Avalon, who was one of the founders of Takeoff e-retail, was the chief merchant for Lampert. Uh, Lampert let him leave the company. Avalon's uh, done 90 e-retail uh, micro-fulfillment centers, roboticized, mechanized, 8,000 square feet, can do a million a week. That would have saved Sears. The guy's sitting in the executive suite with Lampert, and Lampert doesn't want to invest in sales circulars, doesn't want to reno and revinyl the store, raises prices with impunity, sees the solution to save the company, lets it go. What do we do here? We bring back 
Bob Mettler, Arthur Martinez, the dream team that saved Sears 20 years ago, and the board's too obtuse to do it. And uh, Lambert, in my views, has, has too much ego to do it. And the American taxpayers are going to pay a very painful price for this one. So is Lambert's play here, in your opinion, simply a real estate play, uh, the stores and so on and so forth? I, I just don't see a way how he recovers anything uh, remotely close to what he, I'm sure, originally planned. Paul, as, as, as you referenced well, it was a real estate play to start with Marty Whitman when they controlled uh, Kmart almost 20 years ago, and that bankruptcy combined it with Sears. Real estate play and huge fees to Lampert and his company, in addition to indemnification uh, for him not to have litigation liability. And in my view, he should be investigated, and if investigated, uh, pay the cons- commercial consequences. So that sort of takes us to the whole concept of shopping malls and the role of them going forward. And honestly, this was called into relief by J.C. Penney, which decided to stop t- selling major appliances as well as furniture in some U.S. stores this week, as Bloomberg News reported yesterday. I'm just wondering, you know, what will be the role of shopping malls? Just how much uh, of the carnage has already happened versus needs to happen? Lee. Lisa, what's happening in the U.S. will be much worse than what's happening overseas. And in our worldwide work um, for arbitration uh, tribunals, Paris, Dubai, we had to do a worldwide study of research luxury to mid-tier to downstream. And what we see in London is Selfridges, store of the year three years ago in a row, Harvey Nichols, digitize the experience. So they get young consumers. It's almost like going to a Disney property and they get all kinds of graphics. One would see on her, his mobile phone, Uh, what the Parisian retailers do when uh, Bloomberg's not correctly reporting the yellow vests um, uh, rioting in the streets. The retailers in South Korea, Japan here know how to evolve with the future, invest in malls to make them exciting. Here, uh, they're, they're dead elephants just waiting to be restructured by private equity firms. Some of the private equity firms are good in our view. I don't think uh, Lambert's private equity firm in anybody's view is constructive. So you still think that there is a role for bricks and mortar retail, but is your view that it has to be much more closely tied in and aligned with the digital e-commerce offering? That is that the life uh, the life raft for bricks and mortar? Exactly as you stated, Paul. And here's the example: Sears, 1984, in Hamburg, where the Buffalo Bills play close to the Canadian border. Like all the Sears Canadian border stores, should be doing lots of business. It's not. But Amazon moved in to Niagara Falls Boulevard with a combination Amazon Whole Foods store, where they blew up the whole uh, Niagara Falls Boulevard mall. Uh, replaced the Bonton bankrupt department store with an Amazon Amazon Whole Foods. That store is supposed to do 1.25 million a week. That store is now doing less than 200,000 a week. A year after its opening, it's going to close like the Amazon bricks and mortar stores. So the retail apocalypse or ice age is affecting everybody from Sears to Amazon because while Bezos, in my view, is the most brilliant person who's ever worked in retail, when he's running the show, he's great. But now he's going to the show and all these sideshows uh, that he's per- personally distracted uh, with his divorce. So Amazon's failing in bricks and mortar as is Sears and the guys with the great leaders will win. So let's talk about who's actually doing a good job of adopting brick and mortar to the modern era in the United States. 
Uh, look, look at what uh, Frank Blake did to completely turn around Home Depot before he became chairman of Delta, uh, doing doing a tremendous job. Off-price, uh, as, as you've referenced well a number of times, Lisa, whether it's Ali's Bargain Stores on the low end or uh, Bur- Burlington or TJX or Ross, off-price customers uh, want to shop primarily on price. Chris Baldwin. Uh, but, th- but this has something to do with the experience, right? Uh, the experience and and price, so it's a combination. Uh, treasure hunt in terms of the experience. Home Depot is a great experience in store, online, uh, and if and if you look uh, at a number of others uh, from the department stores and luxury, start with South Korea, uh, then then go to London, uh, Paris. Uh, you go to Dubai uh, and and throughout P, the PRC in Japan. A lot of great in store experiences, but the retailers are. are looking at uh, everything in CapEx yeah. as an expense rather than an investment to profitably drive sales. Yeah, definitely going to be a big challenge. How do you invest while also watch declining sales and adopt to a modern era, both in brick and mortar as well as on their online platforms? Bert Flickinger, thank you so much for being here. As always, Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. Uh, you know, definitely a big existential question facing retail. How big can the brick and mortar presence be? How How do you fight against Amazon.com? So trade talks on, off, on again. Perhaps off again. Now we know that President Trump is not going to be meeting with Xi Jinping ahead of that March 1st deadline. Why? What happened? It's hard to know. But we knew the one person is keeping track of it very closely. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products at Bloomberg LP, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Mike, what happened? Why are the talks now off before the March 1st deadline? I mean, are they? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there I we go. Know, it, seemed, it seemed like, I mean, uh, the, the Trump-Xi meeting may apparently be postponed, but they're still having talks next week. So, I mean, it's really hard to decipher what this means. I mean, I think... Uh, why maybe... are we hearing about all this? Why Why the chatter? Why the... Well, why it, the, it seems like... Did, did someone ask him a question in kind of a random... Uh, press conference or just discussion he was having. I'm not really sure how we, we, we got the information. I was actually a little bit confused by that yesterday. It was not a formal pronouncement. Yeah, it, and, and I, you know, I noticed the, the, the earliest headline I could see was at 1130, and I think the... Um, uh, you know, the market was actually selling off before that. So the whole thing kind of confused me. But so let's take a step back. Um, you know, I, th- I I don't know what this says about a potential deal. I do think that uh, President Trump's bar for a deal has come down quite meaningfully because of what's been happening in the markets and concerns that the economy has been slowing. Uh, in fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's come down so far. It may actually be at odds now with the people negotiating the trade deal. Primarily what I mean by that is Lighthouser. So, you know, we could have a conflict there. Uh, so I, I'm still optimistic we're going to reach some sort of deal. I think we'll get the best possible deal, which will not be what uh, Trump had originally proposed, but we will. he will get some... Uh, consolations. I think that we'll have some tangible stuff as it relates to the deficit. And I think we'll have promises for some of the more difficult challenges, the intellectual property, uh, opening up an investment in some Chinese sectors. And I think right, the, the, the difficult thing is going to be uh, what kind of measures are put in place to enforce those. And I think that's probably where the negotiations are centered right now. And I think the Chinese are realized now and are more willing to, to give more concessions as well. So I do think a deal is possible. This delay of, of the 
Xi Trump meeting is confusing because he said that it'll be finalized at a meeting between us. If they don't meet by the deadline, what happens? Do we get the tariffs? Do we not get the tariffs? Uh, I suppose we'll know more next week when the the meetings do happen, not between uh, Xi and Trump, but between more junior negotiation. So, Mike, again, it's... Do you have a sense of who's more incented to get a deal done? I think we hear about China's economy slowing. Obviously, we know that, but maybe we've we've had some people come in here saying it's slowing materially more than the government is letting on, i.e., they may be more incented to do a deal. Do you buy into that? Well, I think, you know, looking at last year, you had a problem where it was their deleveraging agenda that was causing the slowdown in the country. Trade wasn't really a factor yet. You still have the issue with the deleveraging agenda slowing down growth more than they anticipated. And then you add on top of that trade. So, yeah, that does put a lot of pressure on China. But I think if you look at, you know, when President Trump started this um, with China, U.S. GDP growth was over 3%. The markets were rallying. Everything was looking great in the U.S., Things don't look as good now. Sentiment is collapsing. Uh, If you look at one measure in the University of Michigan, the percent of people who um, randomly make good comments about government economic policy, it's at the lowest it's ever been during the Trump presidency. Uh, You had the shutdown. So there's some erosion in confidence in the economic agenda in the U.S. Uh, So Trump needs some wins. And this could be a nice, good, easy win that could bring some confidence back. Which brings us back to the confusing head scratcher of yesterday when we got the headlines that President Trump was not going to be attending a meeting with President Xi Jinping of China. And just to put this into perspective, about why we're focusing on it if we don't really have a a lot of clarity there. Arguably, that's what sunk the Nasdaq and the Dow in particular and sort of led the week uh, into a rather negative tone, right? I mean, this actually did have a market effect. We saw it happen uh, when the headlines hit. We saw uh, stocks take a, a further leg lower in the U.S. So my question is, if they are not talking or if President Trump doesn't meet with Xi Jinping, could we still get a deal ahead of that March 1st deadline? Well, I, I think anything obviously is possible, but I mean, maybe unlikely we, though. Uh, it seems unlikely, but maybe we could get an extension of the deadline to accommodate the meeting. And what would the mar- I mean, would that be considered a win? For who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, fair enough. I mean, my, my point is, is that is that a, I mean, is that it, enough for the market? It, thank you. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think. <laughs> thank if, you for if understanding you, me. Pops. If you if you get that extension, uh, I think that would imply that a deal is basically ha- has been reached, and it's a formality that they need to meet and then sign the deal. So I think that the market would look at that as a positive. If they're, if, I'm not talking about like another three six month extension. I'm talking about saying we're going to extend this deal. Um, another couple weeks or whatever to accommodate a meeting between President Xi and President Trump to finalize some of the loose ends. Are promises enough? Like if they promise on technology, that's not enough. No. And I think that's that's one of the, the key points right now is they're trying to figure out what enforcement mechanisms they could put in place that they could track over the next two years on some of the uh, following through with some of the more difficult challenges. I mean, Very you good. know, I, you know, it's interesting. Thank you, uh, Mike McDonough. Thank you very much. We always appreciate your your insights here. Mike is the chief economist, financial products for Bloomberg LP. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, you know, I don't know, color me pessimistic, but, the, you know, I think some of the big issues that have to be addressed here on the trade deal are the very hard issues about technology, about uh, intellectual property. It's and about I'm, soybeans, Paul. It's I know it's your soybeans. soybeans. I know it's your soybeans. <laughs> but at some point, they're going to have to get down to brass tacks and go to those very tough issues, which are really economically material. Uh, 
Uh, we have seen the price of iron ore surge by more than 25% over the past 10 sessions, catching a lot of people's attention. But you know what's catching even more people's attention, at least the attention of Mike McClone? That is corn and crops and the fact that we are finally going to get some information for the first time in two months about just how well uh, U.S. farmers have been doing over the past couple months. Mike McClone joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So what's up with this, uh, with this report that we're about to get? Well, we haven't had data from USDA for two months. So everybody's waiting for it. The market's stuck in a range. This is waiting for the data. And I fear the market's more likely to kind of do what iron ore has. You know, commodities have been pretty beat up. The dollar's been very strong. And then you just get a little piece of news like what happened with the ballet. And the market just has a, the you know, path of least resistance seems to be up. And I think that might be the more of the case today with, with um, the uh, grains and eggs. So what commodities in particular are you most looking forward to seeing data you just i just i'm a little bit i need this data to help me form my opinion because it's been two months and there's a lot of volatility which what are some of the data points you're most looking forward to today well you mentioned corn corn soybeans and wheat the key issue has been soybeans we all know there's just way too much supply soybeans because of the trade war um and we all expect the thing it's already priced in um but i'm kind of watching corn because corn has the best balance and all the estimates are that all the that we had last year, the yields have probably declined a little bit. The production estimates have probably come off a little bit. And so corn's going to be the one also. Once we think we can virtually guarantee next year we're going to get a lot more corn planted. It's just a question of how much it's marketed. And we don't export a lot of corn. We use a lot. We actually use most of our corn now for ethanol. Interesting. So, Mike, uh, given the fact that you've done this for decades and you've been intimately connected with just how volatile things can get, look into your crystal ball. If we get a positive reading out of this FDA report, uh, USDA, not FDA, USDA report, yeah. uh, how much could you see the price of corn rise? I Right now, my estimate is 4 to 5%. That's simple analysis. In one session? And just in, Well, in, overall, maybe yeah. take a few seconds. But it's, even if the data is neutral, if you look at the futures curve, because there's really not a lot of data, the futures curve is switched towards more towards backwardation, which means the futures curve is expecting demand to pick up versus supply. And then you look at one other key factor, the Brazilian real. Remember, we had the big election last year. It looks like the real is bottom. So these two factors are, are turning positive. In addition, we all know what's going to happen with this trade issue. It's got to go back. It's not going to get as bad as last year. We should see some mean reversion, which mean, to me means this data has to be really bearish or the market's more likely to go higher. So, Mike, let's switch from the uh, softer commodities to the hardest of commodities, arguably iron ore. How surprised are you? You know, as Lisa mentioned, you know, a big move up in iron ore over the last 10, 10 sessions, uh, due in part, I guess, in large part to the supply disruption from Vale uh, in Latin America. Um, how surprised are you at the volatility of that commodity, given what is, you know, I guess a meaningful supply disruption? Yes, it was significant. It's just like natural gas last year. The path of least resistance with some of this news is up because that's what commodities are doing. They're bottoming. But the significance of iron ore is it's just not widely traded. There's no real active futures. Um, and for me as a strategist, it's also not highly correlated to industrial metals. It's, it's ironic, but it isn't. So I just kind of keep it as an, as an eye in the back burner and I watch copper and I watch aluminum. But iron ore is an indication where things are going. It's not going down. Yeah, but I mean, I understand that it's it might be thinly traded, but it still is a commodity that's an essential ingredient in any infrastructure spending. And frankly, that is often used as a gauge of global economic growth. So, I mean, is there a bigger kind of message to take away here that a supply disruption at a major producer of iron ore could cause 
really, I mean, 27% increase in the price in 10 sessions. This is dramatic. I have to temper my enthusiasm to be bullish commodities because obviously I'm a commodity guy, but I look at this year as this is an indicative of, of where markets are going with just little tweaks. It's much easier for them to go up with little things like this. Now, this is a, you know, this is a canary in the coal shaft, but you look at copper, it's just bottomed from a good level. Aluminum is just bottomed from a, a good level. We're going to see corn today. And all these demand, supply demand factors are switching positive. In addition, the key factor is the U.S. dollar. If the dollar has peaked from that 16-year high last year, which I think it has, that's a pretty strong tailwind for all commodities. In addition, we get these little, little supply disruptions. But the key thing to remember about slight disruptions, they're usually short-term events and they come back. What's your number one commodity right now, real 10 seconds? Ah, uh, good. Uh, gold, unfortunately. Gold. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I have to give Mike credit. He's been making a very popular and a very good gold call for two or three months. I heard it just kind of in the background in the office about his gold. I read his reports and uh, spot on, spot on. So, gold. Yeah, it's safety what's, and gold. It's what's for dinner. Safety and gold. Mike McGlone, thanks very much. Mike is a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Thanks so much, Mike. So again, gold, but uh, I gold, I can see gold in the <laughs> so space. So again, gold. So again, gold in the market that is down 260 points on the Dow. Gold does not sound so bad. Uh, we've got uh, you know people concerned about the economic outlook, certainly in the back half of the year. So why not gold? So Mike, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.